0: Good morning. Good morning. Uh, it is a delight, a true delight, to be with you here and especially in this celebration, this 200th anniversary year. And I want to thank my dear friend, Father Luis Leon, for this gracious invitation. We have been friends for many years, he and his wife, Lou, and we thank you for your friendship, but also you and the vestry for this invitation. I must acknowledge my dear, dear wife of 46 years, Mary Ellen. And uh, when you see her, you'll wonder how old was she when she got married. Uh, But Mary, I thank you for your partnership. You know, as um, uh, many of us who are in uh, demanding professions know, our spouses can often uh, be the source to keep us humble. Uh, When I was... uh, Uh, elected bishop, and I said to her, I said, Mary, in your wildest dreams, did you ever imagine you'd be married to a bishop? She said, dear, you don't appear in my wildest dreams. (laughs) So, um, It's to keep us humble. Um, Our first lesson is in the writings of Isaiah and just a bit at the beginning of that third part of Isaiah, that third book these words God says to Isaiah and to his people for your thoughts are not my thoughts and my thoughts and my ways are not your ways for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than yours. I believe today's lessons speak to the hard truth that God's claim upon our lives, our circumstances, our gifts, the timing of our initiatives, always has a way of exceeding our preferences. I remember um, a member of the chapter and a good friend used to say to me, Many Christians pray, Lord, grant that I may be of service in your cause, particularly in an advisory capacity. But God's ways are not our ways. God's preferences are not always our preferences. In the first lesson, Isaiah 62, we begin to see how throughout Scripture and the history of faith, Preferred circumstances are not always God's. There is a remnant of the exile of Israel, which in this lesson has now been permitted to return to Jerusalem. Persia had conquered the previous conquerors and lords of exile, and now they had given permission for a remnant to return to Jerusalem, to begin the process of rebuilding. Now, it's important to remember that the Babylonian and the Persian exiles were not like Egypt. Indeed, many of those of the exiled Israelis were persons who were well-educated, cultured. In fact, they had been cultivated by those who oversaw their exile. Just think of Daniel, how well Daniel had been trained. Babylon had really given him great opportunity. And of course, we think of beautiful Queen Esther, the Persian who was so beautiful that she was, even through the influence of her uncle, became the queen. So here you have a very cultured and refined persons, and from that, a remnant is allowed now to go back and to rebuild and resettle this nation that had once been great. But when they arrive, they find that the land is ravished. It's been neglected. There are people there who are not like them. And so they find themselves moving from elation an experience of desperation. This call of being a chosen people, the renowned temple uh, that they had remembered, the great legacy as a nation was all now dashed, and this remnant group's original elation is now gone. How could God, the one who had called them and chosen them, have let this happen and and, and assigned them? That they might come in the midst of this unglorious circumstance to begin a mission and a ministry. Like Israel, our spiritual ancestors, and I say spiritual ancestors because if you ever go to, and I encourage you to, to visit a synagogue, particularly an Orthodox synagogue, you will be surprised at how much we as Christians have stolen from their liturgy. They are our spiritual ancestors. And like they, we believed in order and beauty and dignity and the power of status quo. It is somehow our spiritual identity and ethos. And somehow we tend to assume uh, that God's preference is always for that kind of order. That that is where we can find God in the beauty and the order and in circumstances over which our dignity is affirmed. True story about a seminary, an evangelical seminary in Kentucky. About 15 years ago, there was an article and it told about this line in the refectory. They were going through to get their food and at the beginning of the line, there was a lovely silver bowl and it had polished red delicious apples and there was a beautiful computer-generated sign that said... Take one, take only one, and remember, God is watching. (laughs) At the other end of the line, there was a large box of store-brand butter cookies. The box had been ripped open, poured out on a plastic tray, and there was a hand-scrawled note that said, Take as many as you like. God is at the other end watching the apples. Our Episcopal Church, once the church that led Protestantism and was distinguished by being the the upper class, the power class at prayer, we were culturally, and still are, tastefully generous. We are orderly and thoughtful in what we do, subtle in our political influences and moderate on social and economic issues. We were the elite class, One person said, we may have been frozen, but we were chosen. This term and distinction is well described in a book, The Power of Their Glory, ruling America's class, the Episcopalians. But then we began going through a season of deep controversies. There was the book of common prayer in which they took away my glossolalia, my Latin, which is King James English. It's what Jesus prayed with. <laughs> and, 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 and so many of us felt a loss with this contemporary language. There were women who said, we are tired of bake sales and ECW alone. We want to be members of vestry. We want to be deputies to convention. We want to be deacons, priests, and bishops. And then the civil rights movement, movement for racial justice. We acknowledge Martin Luther King on tomorrow. You might remember the letter that he wrote from a Birmingham jail. It was in response to about 11 bishops, two of whom were Episcopal bishops who told him the time was not right, that he was causing trouble. There were many bishops who said their clergy could not go south and march for justice. Then Bishop Hines, our presiding bishop, stood up and said, I override it. Over 500 clergy went down to Selma and to Montgomery and stood with those who were seeking justice. And of course we know about the Vietnam protest and we know about the HIV AIDS that came about and and somehow the Episcopal Church creating ministries to reach out and educate and care for people. And and to one point there became a banner uh, with the Episcopal seal on it that says, our church has AIDS. A lot of people were uncomfortable with this. And then The the GLBT community, the sense of ordination and blessing, and then later marriage and our general convention saying we believe in the equality of marriage, not because it is culturally convenient, but because as we continue to grow, we are seeing that God is calling for the inclusion of all people to enjoy the wholesome experience of sharing life together. So for many of us, this sense of loss of order, of control, of respectability, people and issues suddenly were seeing around us that we didn't recognize, that did not seem like us. And we felt like we were in a true exile regarding our identity. I remember in 1986, presiding Bishop Browning, perhaps the most pastoral presiding bishop we have had in recent years, said in his inaugural sermon, there will be no outcast in the Episcopal Church. We were no longer associated exclusively with the powerful or only the socially acceptable. We were the church of women and blacks who didn't know their place. We were the church of AIDS. We were the church of queers. We were the church of the outcast. And we paid a price. We experienced defections. We experienced splintered bodies, decline in numbers, and internal division with every controversy. As former epistocrats, it was like an exile of identity, of social humiliation for many, an ecclesiastical diminishment. And some had hoped that when we shook off the ashes, finally, of all of these controversies, those who remain could rebuild a new status, reclaim the dignity of the church with a new contemporary call, But presiding Bishop Catherine Jeffrey Shores reminded us that what we had been experiencing in what felt like these years of exile was really God showing us in the last 50 years and shaping us to be a new church, to be a church about mission, a church that faithfully heard the call of God, not society, not culture, but heard the call of God to reconsider God's love for all people. And so like Israel, we are discovering our new calling. The ground on which we stand in our new witness is actually what God has been in causing us to grow into in these years. We are called, in fact, to take this smaller parcel of political influence, of social dominance, of ecclesiastical prominence, this seemingly ravaged partial of land, and make it a sign for God. A new Jerusalem of peace, of justice, and of hope. And this is so important, my my friends. It's so important, especially in this uh, contemporary world, which has become so content with hatred, with xenophobia, with a sense of having my gun and my rights to have a gun regardless of the death that it may cause for others. I don't even want to have the conversation. A time when there is violence in so many parts of our community and poverty, poverty, even with this improved economy, is so great in our nation. It is a world which sees exclusion of those who are racially, politically, culturally, sexually, and religiously different than our American virtue. A political ethic of cultural purity is taking hold in so many parts, too many parts of our nation. And we hear so often people saying, I want my country back. But in this world, you and I are called We are among those Christians called to pay the price for the sake of the gospel. And what do I mean by the sake of the gospel? Listen to John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son the incarnate sign of God's love for all the world so that everyone who believes in this incarnate sign of God's inclusive love may not perish, may not perish from hate and selfishness, fear and bigotry, those things that destroy the soul, but may have life with the eternal. And then he goes on to say, Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved from itself through him. I don't know about you, but I'm constantly needing to be saved from myself. I preach a good sermon, but I struggle with sexism. I struggle with issues of how inclusive can I be for those who are gay and lesbian because I'm black. Where's my issue? It's the women, it's the blacks. But God keeps saving me. He keeps saying, for God so loved Episcopalians. Uh, I'm sorry, for God so loved black bishops. No, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the world needs to know that good news. So many today do not understand the church as a purveyor of the witness of a loving God. That God is punitive, at the end of the line, protecting the rules and the apples. Buster Keaton, some of you may be young enough to remember him, uh, was a well-known agnostic. And somebody asked him once, they said, uh, uh, Buster, is it true you don't believe in God? And he said, no, I don't believe in God, but I'm still scared of him. (laughs) Too often, the world does not believe in the God of love, and the God they would believe in is this God who who is a retributive God, who is a God of punishment and not a God of love. And God is more than all of those things, but that's the peace that we see such a need to be heard. And so this day, some may see God only at the end, beginning of the line, watching the apples, but I believe that our God is also at the other end with the butter cookies spread out over an altar of grace. Yes, our message may seem to some less polished and less attractive, the status quo, but we are saying to the outcast, the rejected, the shamed, the marginalized, the voiceless, what the prophet Isaiah said, Come all of you who are thirsty for the love of God thirsty for the dignity of God's imago Dei. You who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine without money and without cost. Come and taste and delight in the Lord. And that's what that sign outside that says all are welcome in the Episcopal Church. It is invitation to come and taste and delight in the Lord. And Jesus picked up this theme in the Gospel of John when he said, if anyone is thirsty, if anyone has a spiritual hunger, if anyone is hungry for justice and righteousness, if anyone is concerned for peace, he says, come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture Isaiah and Amos has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living waters. What's flowing from my life? What's flowing from your life? What's flowing from our Episcopal Church? It is, the, is it the stagnation that does not give life but contains and allows the algae to grow? Or is it that continued, fast-moving waters, fresh, crisp, that bring life, that nurture wholeness, that feed the souls of others? I I know that you are aware of the recent vote of the primates of the Anglican Communion, primates being archbishops, presiding bishops, and metropolitans. And they have said that over the next three years, their desire is that the Episcopal Church, because of its decision to ordain women, by its canons change, to acknowledge the marriage of same-gender people, that for three years we would not represent the Anglican Communion or any aspect of it in ecumenical councils. We can show up at meetings. However, we cannot represent the communion. That we cannot take part in any of the decisions that will be made regarding doctrine and polity. Other things, fine. Mission and whatever. Well, Someone said to Father Leon this morning at the early service when she was going out, well, maybe that's not all bad. We don't have to go to more meetings now. (laughs) But I am so grateful for our presiding bishop, Michael Curry. Here's what he said. He said, this has been a disappointing time for many, and there will be heartache and pain for many. But the truth is, it may be part of our vocation as Episcopalians to help the communion and to help many others grow in a direction where we can realize and live the love that God has called for all of us. And we can one day then be a church and a communion where all of God's children are fully welcomed. And so he says we must claim as Episcopalians the high calling of love and faith, not only for those who have been excluded, but even love for those who disagree with us and then continue our work. We don't often realize how God has used us to move the bar of justice along. Just in the same week that we heard the pronouncements of the primates, the Archbishop of Canterbury made a public apology on BBC and in all the major newspapers for the treatment of the church of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people. He said, we apologize for the pain and the hurt, the unChrist-like way we have treated you. Throughout the Anglican Communion, including the Church of England, parts of Asia and Africa are now ordaining women. Women, bishops, in some parts of Africa, in the Church of England. God has been using us even though it feels like we are so far from the order and the beauty and the dignity we once knew. But God is using us. And so the work of justice is always costly. And yes, even though the primates have made this statement, they have said, but we don't want you to leave the table. Give us this three years. As Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice, we want our pound of flesh. They want to see us humble. And you know, the truth of the matter is, we could use some humility because we believe in what we are doing, we have to be careful that that epistocrat attitude does not become arrogance in the work of justice. And so we go forward with a sense of our vocation. For sisters and brothers, we cannot go backwards. It may be tempting, but we cannot go back. For we have seen the ugliness of prejudice, the ugliness of exclusion, We have seen the detriment of elitism and status quo. And we have also seen the beauty of Christ in the diversity of our sisters and brothers. So whatever the cost, we must continue to follow our Lord up New Calvaries and allow the water of God's love within us to flow out and nurture the church and the world. For as James Russell Lowell wrote, by the light of burning martyrs, Christ's thy bleeding feet we track, toiling up new calvaries ever with the cross that turns not back. New occasions teach new duties. Time makes ancient good uncouth. They must upward still and onward. Who would keep abreast? Of truth so we cannot go back whatever the cost we must continue to follow Christ now we're not the only ones addressing these issues but somehow because of our status we, we tend to move from the society page in our days to the page of politics and all of that sort of thing and I sometimes wish that God would push somebody else to the front sometimes I have to say as a bishop I get a little weary I think of the the, the story of the boys who were arguing over the last piece of chocolate cake. Anybody here like chocolate? Yes, sir. Well, I love chocolate, and they were arguing. No, you had a piece. No, Mom said, the mother heard them arguing. She came in, and she said, boys, what's the issue? Oh, Mom, it's the last piece of chocolate. But he had some last. Boys, boys, boys. WWJD. What does that mean? What would Jesus do? And what do you think Jesus would do? One brother said, I guess he'd say, let my brother have the last piece of chocolate cake. Mother smiled, turned around, and walked away. As she got out of earshot, the bigger boy said to the little boy, why don't you be Jesus today? (laughs) We are called. We are called on a mission to represent as our faith and life go forward, a time when the work that we are doing, we will recognize that God does take glory. That as was said in Isaiah, God is still married to us. God still sees us as holding a diadem. We're not the only one, but we're the ones that need to know that God takes pride and joy in the risk and sacrifice of our ministry. And as our presiding bishop has said, we are the Episcopal branch of the Jesus movement. And Jesus' cause is the cause of God's love in this world. The movement of God's inclusive love can never stop. And so I say as he says, God love you. God bless you. And sisters and brothers, keep the faith. Amen.